This is Encounters, a dialogue that brings you multifaceted life stories you don't want to miss. We go through life looking and listening and feeling and smelling and touching all these things and they're all a part of our memory and sound we listen to sound to background noises every day in our lives and we forget them because they're in the background we were meant to forget them because they're not obviously information so you don't necessarily remember them but sounds like smells when they go into your memory, they automatically attach to your emotions. So the sound changes or it disappears, and then you hear it many years afterwards. The sound, the memory of the sound will come back with those emotions that they're attached to. So when you remember a sound, you'll also have a very strong emotional memory. We realized what people actually find as interesting or important for them are not necessarily grand sounds or really important sounds. It could be really insignificant and just daily, just things that you experience on a very daily basis. But those are actually part of your life, more a part of your life than the really, let's say, important sounds. Sound, if it's attached to people at such a deep level, then sound can be something very personal. And that's what's interesting for me from a historical point of view, because even though we hear the same sound objectively, it's exactly the same, your emotional response to it and my emotional response to it will be completely different. So that's what's interesting for me is how deeply personal it is and what my project aims to do are bringing that out, because that brings out a lot of your past that you didn't even know where was there. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Man Ling. Street vendors roam around the alleyways, hawking their goods with a rising and falling intonation. Flocks of pigeons fly in the sky against a distinctive din of bamboo whistles. Pet birds sing as they are taken out for a walk. All these sounds are played in a booth at the Shijia Hutong Museum in central Beijing to take you back in time to the old days. The small room is known as the Beijing Sound Museum. It's the creation of British conceptual artist Colin Chinnery. Most of the sounds you have heard can no longer be found in the capital today. Over the past few years, Colling has devoted himself to recording sundry sounds of traditional Beijing culture, as he feels some may soon fade away as urban development accelerates. In today's program, I am continuing my dialogue with Colling. He will share his understanding of sound and what he has done to save the vanishing audio of old Beijing. Our dialogue starts at Shijiahu Tong, one of the most historic lanes of Beijing. So the name of that museum is? 
Shijiahutong Museum. Just the Shijiahutong Museum. That's right. Yeah. Would you please elaborate the name to our listeners?、Um, What is Shijiahutong? Yeah, Shijiahutong. You have many hutong. Hutong just means alleyway. Alleyway in Chinese.、Um, it comes from a Mongolian word, apparently, for alley. And Shijia is just the name of that particular alley. It means the Shi family. Now nobody knows exactly why it's called the Shi family hutong. There's no document that proves why, but that's the name of the hutong, and that's where my family used to live. My great grandfather was the last imperial mayor of Beijing in the Qing Dynasty. He had the position equivalent to mayor of Beijing, and he had a big family. He had a big house. He was a top government official. And、um, the hutong, he had a very big house. Starting, the front entrance was at Ganmian Hutong. It's another hutong,、mm-hmm. and the back entrance was in Shijia Hutong.、Mm. It was a residence that stretched, spanned two streets. You know, it's a typical Chinese courtyard sort of for architecture. That's right. He had many children, but his favorite child was my grandmother, and、uh, because she was a talented Lin Shuhua, because she was a talented writer and he liked the arts. So when she got married, he gave. The back part of the residence, the part that adjoins Shijia Hutong, he gave that to my grandmother and her husband as, as a, dowry. a dowry. That's right. Wow. Yeah, not a bad present. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's why we lived there. That's my grandmother, my grandfather lived there, and then my mother lived there as a child. And、um, now it belongs to Dongcheng District Government.、Mm-hmm. That was in two thousand and thirteen. So that's when they're developing the museum. They invited me to become an advisor because I have curatorial experience, and, and also because of my family background there.、Mm-hmm. And that's when, during the meeting, they said they're interested in doing like an old Beijing themed museum. And then your sound museum is only a part of it, right? Yeah, my sound museum started there. Sound is ephemeral; it's not physical. And so my sound museum is also ephemeral. I don't have a physical museum. A sound museum is where it happens. It's not in one particular building. Intangible. So, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Intangible cultural heritage. Heritage. That's right. And so sound museum started there as a concept. It started there also physically. During the time when they were planning the museum, they were interested in exploring traditional Beijing culture. And so I suggested, well, why don't you do something with Beijing sound? Because Traditional Beijing culture, there's a lot of it that is about sound. Beijing culture is a very special culture because of its sensitivity to sound. Talking about sensitivity, I was wondering, you know, when you were a little boy, were you sensitive to sounds? No, I'm not someone who loves sound because it sounds great. I'm not, let's say, a, a field recorder. So you're more interested in the stories behind. Yeah, I'm more interested in the concept of sound, what sound is in society. I would consider myself as a conceptual artist, and that's an artist that deals with ideas rather than, let's say, paint or material. I'm, a, you know, sculpture. I sculpt with stone, or I'm a painter, oil painter. You deal with color and form. I'm a conceptual artist, and I deal with ideas. And the idea of sound is fantastic. Just now, you said people in Beijing are sensitive to sound. Why? I don't know why, but they love playing. Where did you get they, the observation? Okay, they love playing with sonic things. They love making things make sound. Lao Beijing or old Beijing culture is a culture that likes to have fun. They like to play with things, to have fun with things. And one of those I mentioned earlier, pigeon whistles. Now, people who are not familiar with that will be very confused. Like, what do pigeons and whistles have in common? Well. You know, they might think that they've trained pigeons to whistle with their mouths or something. 
<laughs> would be would be interesting. But no, they what they do is that they have whistles attached to their backs. Actually, their tail feathers. So when they fly through the air in group, the you know in a group. They can do it also individually, but mostly in a group. The air passes through the whistle and it makes this whistling sound. And it's a very beautiful sound because the whistles are made very intricately and they're very delicately made. Some whistles have as many as 20 small whistles attached to one whistle. And they have deep sounds and lighter sounds. They have all kinds of whistles. Pigeon fanciers are all over the world because pigeons are very, you know, they're very interesting animals. They, they fly, they, they come home, you know, they fly yeah. around the home. They're easy to play with in that way as people. But there's only Beijing that thinks of designing a whistle to put on their back and to listen to the sound and not just look at them as beautiful, you know, pigeon fanciers. They breed pigeons in all sorts of amazing shapes and sizes. But have, no, this is for the sound. Yeah. Have you dug into the reasons why only Beijing people developed a, this whistle sort of um, the, Again, with, with a lot of this kind of folk culture, there's no documentation to prove when it happened or anything like that. I think it's probably, from what I can gather from what I've read, it's later in the Qing dynasty that it really took off as a habit. Uh, Beijing really started this in the 19th century as something fun to do with pigeons. And Beijing people love to keep birds, songbirds. They love to keep insects for their chirping. Mm-hmm. All these things. Crickets, and, right? Yeah, well, not only crickets, all kinds of insects for their chirping. All, all sorts of, uh, yeah, really? Yeah, crickets are one form, but there's many other forms. that, that And it's not just Beijing. All over China, they, they do this. But they Beijing, they take this to a real extreme and then in what sort of forms does your museum present to visitors? What do you expect people to take away after well, visiting your San Museum? The San Museum in at the Shijiao Hutong is a very small room with a touch screen and where you can choose to listen to recreations of old Beijing's sonic environment. Uh, and you can choose different seasons to listen to, you know, what it sounded like in the Hutongs in the winter or the spring, the summer, or the autumn. And or you can listen to individual sounds. Now, sounds that I have there at the moment are basically all like commercial sounds called traveling salesmen, traveling merchants, uh, street hawkers and the instruments that they used to use to make a sound or the songs and the cries that used to make. Uh, it's mostly those sounds that I have at the, the Shijiao Hutong project. So it's mostly Beijing, right? It's all Beijing at this moment, at the moment. Besides Beijing, do you also collect the sounds of other cities or places or countries? Well, I aim to. I've concentrated on Beijing so far because I am here. It's easy for me to do this long term. And also because old Beijing has so much to offer in terms of sound. I want to do more than just old Beijing, um, contemporary Beijing as well, Beijing now as well, and as well as previous generations. But old Beijing has got a lot of things that, one, are very little known, two, very important culturally, and three, uh, the people who still know about these sounds and can still make these sounds are in their 90s and they're really dying out. So time is urgent, right? Yeah. Recently, I discovered some elderly Beijing men, actually, and one woman, who can still make the uh, old lao jiao mai, the old hawking sounds. Ah. Now, there's one elderly man who is 94 years old, and he did almost everything when he was a, a young man. He was uh, very poor, and he had to make 
his money himself, and he had to do that on the streets. So he had to, to make food or make snacks or make all sorts of things and then sell that on the streets. I mean, a lot of this survived into the 1950s as well, but he's the only person still alive who actually did it. Okay, now there's an elderly woman who is 86 years old who also did it. She's actually the two of them still alive, but her voice is no longer strong enough for me to record her now. So what did you do? Well, I met with her, and I've, I did a little interview and filmed with her. Do you fake uh, some songs? No, no, no. I'm very stubborn, and I try to get the real thing. Yeah, I remember one, there was one particular time when I wanted to record the authentic sound of camel bells. Because in old Beijing, before like say, trains and lorries became prevalent, transportation of goods was by camel. Now, I can't imagine nowadays like camels roaming the streets of Beijing, but... You know, up to the 1950s and before, you know, there are camels all over the city and they're carrying goods and stuff, you know, especially in the winter when they're carrying coal into the city, you know, for everybody's stoves. And each camel train, they would have camel bells. Mm -hmm. There'd be one camel with bells. And this is like everything from like all the way from Turkey to Damascus to, to Beijing. Major transportation all, means, all right? All camels have camel bells. Universal. As where you have camels, you have camel bells. Why? I don't know. To let people know that we are here, right? <laughs> I think it's so that because you go on long to journeys with camels, and if you have a camel train, if you stop listening to the bell, that means there's something wrong. Oh, so it yes. needs to always hear this bell. And if the bell stops ringing, there's something wrong. And so sometimes they attach a bell to the camel at the back. Mm -hmm. So if that camel gets ill you know, or, or, fall, or, or gets stolen or something, then there's something wrong. If the camel at the front, then you don't know. You can see it. But the camel at the back, you can't see it. Something goes wrong, you stop hearing the bell. Yeah. So that's the idea. So in Beijing, there would always be the sound of camel bells everywhere in the city. And so that's a very important sound to have. So at the beginning, I borrowed the camel bell from a collector of old objects. And I shook it in the, in like, like a camel, pretended to be a camel in a recording studio to mimic the movement of a camel walking along and just like the camel bell going dong, 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 like that. And, but I thought that was cheating. Yeah, I thought that was like really cheating. So I had to get real camel to walk along. You'd have the camels breathing and it's snorting and it's footsteps and all that. So I went to great lengths and actually quite a lot of expense to find camels in a quiet place as well. I can't find camels in, in a, a noisy place. I can't record it. So I, found, I managed to find these camels in a small, very small film making resort about an hour and a half drive outside of Beijing in this small desert. I think it's a fake desert, but it's, it's a very, very small desert. And it's made for filming kind of desert scenes. Mm. And uh, of course, they have camels there in order to film desert scenes with camels. And so I got camel bells and I attached it to you know the neck of the camel and I rode the camel recording its sounds. And the problem is that Camels don't have sound of footsteps. They have these very soft pads. You can't hear a thing. And Not like horses, right? No, with the hooves and they clonk, clonk, clonk. Yeah. And then their breathing is very light. You can, can't really hear it. And they don't make a sound unless they're angry or upset or something. They don't make a sound. So in the end, I compared the sound that I recorded at great expense on real camels alongside the sound of just me shaking camel bells in the studio and I realized there was no difference. I actually listened to it. Yeah, so, side by side. The only difference was that one had the kind of sound of 
kind of shuffling of grass because it's walking along this grass mm-hmm. yeah, and a little bit of shuffling of grass and it was not only the camels were walking also the camel keepers were walking alongside so it's kind of footsteps but that's not integral part of what I wanted there was no breathing there was no snorting there was so basically I went great expense in order to be authentic and then ended up with exactly the same sound that I had with just me in a studio but why didn't this lesson teach you to choose the easier way Well, I think in future I will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the camel story, are you interested in only the camel bell sound or the stories behind? Well, the stories are there anyway. It's yeah. me to actually have an authentic camel bell sound. I can't like, you know, make I don't think it would be right unless I absolutely have no other option for me to like say make a fake camel bells and shake them in the studio. I know the camel bells I had were really old camel bells at mm-hmm. least from the Qing dynasty. Yeah. So those sounds at least were absolutely Real. authentic. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Just now we were talking about the vanished already. Yeah. And then what are the vanishing? Oh, that's uh, lots of things. Just um, one or two examples. Well, I talked about pigeon whistles already. Though that's one example. Lots of things like elderly people singing peking opera in the park you know that is also a wonderful sound it's in society it's not on the stage in a theater it's in society so it's still for me it's sound even though it sounds exactly like peking opera so that's another thing that is vanishing because the later mo- generations will not be doing that right actually <laughs> there are people in their 50s doing that so they can do it for another 20 30 years without any problem i mean i know an old man in in a park who's 94 years old and he's been doing it since the 1930s <laughs> as a young man so it's not about age it's more about attitudes to what chinese urban environment should be like i think there's more a more of an idea that beijing as a city should be a clean and quiet and therefore you know some people think that people singing in a park is sound pollution and therefore you know should be quiet and that's a great shame i think because i think that in the parks if you go to beijing parks they're absolutely wonderful environments for you experiencing one culture you know and chinese culture and also how people want to live you know in a really free and really expressive way it's wonderful seeing you know elderly people retired people having a great time and just expressing themselves being creative and you they look so happy and uh, you know so another sound which is going to disappear very very quickly is the sounds of um songbirds in cages oh. yeah because it's no longer legal to buy or sell songbirds no uh, longer legal it's no longer legal because chinese songbirds are all captured from the wild they're not imported or they're not you know there's no legal framework for you to capture these birds and raise them uh, and yes. raise them like in a legal framework so mm-hmm. they're all caught from the wild catching them from the wild is illegal therefore selling them is illegal so it comes from a good place that the policy comes from a good place it's meant to protect the environment which is very good and I'm absolutely completely in agreement with that the problem is that a whole culture is going to die and that's a shame you know this is like there's white and there's black but you know There's, as I was saying, there's no legal framework for you to capture and breed these songbirds, but maybe there should be. And then that would mean that, you know, a tradition doesn't have to die out. I love when you go to a park and you see these old men 
they are old men. You don't see old women with songbirds, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, they see these old men in the park and they're chatting and they're, ha- they're laughing and they're joking and their songbirds are hanging on the tree and they're chirping away. It's a wonderful experience just to feel the happiness of that. Of, it's a of, typical lobbaging. It's a typical lobbaging. You have songbirds and they keep them other places in China. But let's say, okay, let's think about like uh, Huamei, which is a particular kind of um, bird. Mm-hmm. And the Huamei bird got a beautiful song. It's very loud, very sonorous and very complicated song. And um, in Beijing, they keep these birds simply for their song, to listen to them sing. But in southern China, where these songs originate, they originate in places like Guangxi and Sichuan, mm-hmm. provinces like that in the south of China. They also keep those birds. But why? To fight. Oh. Yeah, they're fighting birds. They would have a female... For competition. Yeah, they'd have a female by the side in a smaller cage, and the, the two males would open the cage, and there's an opening in the middle, and they would fight, right? Yeah. I was so amazed that they oh, would keep cruel. these beautiful songbirds with such a beautiful... For fighting. But, but nothing to do with the song. For the fighting. So that's what's special about Beijing. So these, so let's say you've got this sound. You go, you used to go around Beijing on your bicycle or whatever and walking. And occasionally you pass by a green patch. It might be, you know, next to a busy road. But you'd pass this green patch with some trees and you'd hear this yep. bird song. Yeah. And it would add this little bit of brightness to your day, you know. Yeah. And that's what I love about this kind of these, uh, what we call shijingwenhua, which is like everyday. Folk culture. Yeah, it's. Folk culture is like grassroots ev- culture. Yeah, grassroots culture or just everyday culture. And in what ways songs are related to our life, our society, and our identity as a people, a race, and a nation? I think you're from Edinburgh, and then we are here in Beijing, and mm. I'm a Shanghainese by uh, origin. So I want to know that in your mind, you know, songs can be related because that's the ideas, that's the culture and lifestyle behind songs that you're mm. interested in. Mm. So, in what ways do you think that these songs are related to our life, our individual? Or values, even. We go through life looking and listening and feeling and smelling and touching all these things, and they're all a part of our memory. And sound, we listen to sound, to background noises every day in our lives, and we forget them because they're in the background. We were meant to forget them. We can't listen to everything at the same time. We'd go crazy. But every day, like especially insignificant everyday sounds, like you know the sound of the ding ding of the, of the bus or the taxi meter, or the sound that the elevator makes when it arrives, or the sound of your mother humming when she's doing the washing up or when she's cooking. Mm. Sorry, I'm being sexist. Or your father when he's doing the washing up and when he's cooking. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) These everyday sounds, they're there. They're in your memory. You just forget about them because they're not obviously information like, you know, the voice. Or distinctive. It might be distinctive, but it's not information like music is information and, let's say, speech is information. You're meant to concentrate, listen and remember. So sounds are not part of that. So you don't necessarily remember them. But sounds like smells, when they go into your memory, they automatically attach to your emotions. So if there's sound that you hear over and over again, it will attach to your emotional memory. Now, let's say the sound changes or it disappears, and then you hear it many years afterwards. 
the sound, the memory of the sound will come back with those emotions that they're attached to. So when you remember a sound, you'll also have a very strong emotional memory. Some people will smell a perfume. You'll smell, suddenly smell perfume and remember a time many years ago when you had a girlfriend who used to use that perfume. Mm -hmm. And all these emotions just like well back up. It's a very powerful kind of memory. And so sound is very similar. Sound if it's attached to people at such a deep level, then sound can be attached to culture, to your, your memory. Sounds can be attached to whole eras. They can represent eras. They can represent people, be something very personal. And also they can relate to kind of, let's say, culture at a more everyday level. And those are the things, those everyday cultural things are often not recorded and not you know, they're not part of the academic history or official history. There's something much more ephemeral and yet very important on an everyday level. So there's so lots of things that sounds can do because they're so personal. And that's what's interesting for me from a historical point of view, because when people hear a sound that they haven't heard in years, it's something deeply personal and subjective. So let's say we both remember a sound from the 1980s in China. Okay, what you experienced in what you remember from that era was completely different from me. So mm -hmm. even though we hear the same sound objectively, it's exactly the same. Your emotional response to it and my emotional response to it will be completely different. So that's what's interesting for me is how deeply personal it is. And what my project aims to do or part of my project aims to do in Sound Museum is bringing that out because that brings out a lot of your past that you didn't even aware was there. Your attempt all your efforts is that those background individual, very personal sounds, right, are meant to be forgotten in a long history, you know, thousands of years mm -hmm. until now. But you wanted to keep them and you want to bring them out and for people to realize that they exist. That's right. I think it's a really interesting project to do. That's why I'm doing it. Yeah. Um, we attach a lot of emotions to sounds, right? Without knowing it. Without knowing it. Yeah. But you're a conscious recorder of these sounds. Are you aware of what sounds that will arouse your emotions? It's not for me. It's really nothing to do with me. But you um, have to start from yourself. No, I don't. No. no? I, I, as I say, I'm a conceptual artist. I, I start with the idea. And the idea is not personal. If you're like an expressionist artist, if you're a painter of expressionist painting, of course, everything has to come from within you, you know, as, a, as the, an artist. Oh, as that's a an expressionist. But, but you're a conceptual. Conceptual artist is, is cold, actually, is meant to be quite distant and cold. The idea is, is to look at an idea and see how far that idea can go. And so as the idea is really nothing to do with me, it doesn't come from my experience and my memory, and it's not from my personal warmth towards certain sounds is completely this is an idea that's interesting for me because it has the potential of opening up worlds of memory and emotion in other people so it's what, really all about other people and not I about know. me so let's just uh, reverse it talking mm -hmm. about other people what yeah. sort of memories you opened up in them um, which is touching and unforgettable to you well i remember recently a lady who contacted me over uh, weibo uh, social media and I was talking about other people to say what sounds are interesting for them or, or important for them and uh, or what things they have at home that might be important sonic objects for them. And there was one lady who said that her parents have an old sewing machine at home. 
and you know the the old foot treading uh, sewing machine, mechanical one. And she said the her parents still have it, and that's very important for them. So I, I went over and I met the the parents. The father had a stroke a few years earlier, and he can't speak, but he's still very emotional, very bright and and sparkly, but he just can't speak. And the mother, an old elderly lady in her eighties, showed me the what the sewing machine. It was it had been in the family for almost sixty years, but it looked brand new, completely brand new. So it was obviously a very important part of the family. And yeah, you know, so the the last sixty years in Chinese history has been you know very up and down, very turbulent. And everyday people have gone through all this turbulence, and the objects in their homes are a part of that story. So this sewing machine, which was their prized possession for many, many, many years, and you can see how well it was taken, you know, looked after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, was representative of, of that link with their family and, and all the family history. And when they had to leave Beijing and they left the sewing machine with a friend or a relative and oh. they had to come back and they come back to their sewing machine, the, the old lady was actually, yeah, she was quite, when she was recounting the story, she, she was crying. Yeah. And it's not just the pure sound itself, but there should be a story attached to it. Exactly. And emotional reactions, right? Emotional reactions. Can I share everything. one Oh, absolutely. Please do. I lived in London for three years. Now, whenever I think about London, the tube stations mind the gap. Yeah. It's so sweet. Look at them. I have a Google (laughs) skin now when I'm talking about it. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. Yeah. Well, it's so sweet because. After many years, if you hear that again, of course, you get this emotional reaction. You got an emotional reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand what you're talking about. There's this musician called Peter Kuzak, and he did this amazing project called. It's just like your favorite London sounds, something like that. And. uh, your favorite sounds of London, and you just asked people what their favorite sounds were, and they they gave all kinds of different answers. You know, mm. many people like the bell on the bus and go ding ding. Yeah, when yeah, yeah. You pull the cord twice if you yeah. want to leave. If you want to leave the bus, yeah. just sounds like that. That he we realized at that point when what people actually find is interesting or important for them are not necessarily grand sounds or really important sounds. It could be really insignificant and just daily, just things that you experience on a very daily basis. But those are actually part of your life, more a part of your life than the really, let's say, important sounds. Grand things are made of small particles, right? Small life, details of life. And what's your future plan? So the Sound Museum, all my activities will be there. It'll be much clearer what I'm doing. I just came back from the Tibetan cultural region of Sichuan province, where I I did very extensive sound recording out there. And I want to extend this kind of... I was invited by them to go and record the sounds of Tibetan people. I also want to expand that to the rest of China. Do you think your sound museum will keep spending to cover many more cities in China and then go outside of China, go back to your, like uh, your home country, and then it doesn't necessarily to be you know having a physical space. Exactly. It can be totally cyberspace sort of thing, right? Yeah. So that's my aim: is start with China, and then of course I want to do projects outside of China, and I want to do many of these sonic histories, sound histories and why certain sounds are important and, uh, to certain people. And that's, that's the same all the world over. I want to use this project as a vehicle for me to, you know, experience the world in a different way and also share 
that way of experiencing the world to other people. And then that could take any form. It could take the form of, of a project like the Shijia Hutong, where it's a small room with, a, with some speakers, or it could be uh, sound installations, artworks. It could be projects for elderly people, projects for kids. It could be a part of a website. It could be anything. That's why I like the Sound Museum as a concept, not as a, a brick-and-mortar structure, because it can take on any form almost. Are you now doing it alone or by yourself, or you are I, having assistance from others? Right now I'm on my own. I have a business partner who's going to help me with administrative things and fundraising and things like that. I'm building a studio at the moment, so I'll have an office space. And then I want to do fundraising so I can have two full-time staff members Mm. so I can build on this more professionally and then take it, let's say, first of all, China-wide. Yes, Before I conclude, I'm thinking in my mind, a cat has nine lives, right? If you're going to engage in such a huge project, I think nine lives is not enough for you. (laughs) Other people can carry on, that's fine. Yes, indeed. Good luck. Thank Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And with those songs of the past, we come back to the present where you will soon be able to visit a website set up by calling that encourages internet users to upload the sounds they find interesting and the stories behind them. Calling says sound is personal history and has its unique place in real life. He'd like more people to share their cherished memories through his recording projects. And that's the end of our show. I'm Manling. Thank you for joining us. Please rate us because the more stars we get, the easier it is for other people to find the show. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.